Kevin was the youth pastor of the church that I grew up in. Kevin is from Kentucky where he and his family owned a farm raising cattle. And during the summers when I was in high school, I would join with the other students from my church on mission trips and youth conferences, and we would often stop over at Kevin's family's uh, farm in Kentucky. I got to know that farm quite well during my time in high school. During my freshman year in college, Kevin called me one day and told me that he was resigning his position as our church's youth pastor, and he was going to move back to Kentucky. He was going to continue to be a pastor, but he was going to start serving another congregation, and he was going to start living on his family's farm. I think in a lot of ways, he longed to be in that place that felt like home. So he and his wife, Sarah, moved back to Kentucky where he grew up, and they built a house on that family farm. And since they've been back, they developed a love and a passion for raising sheep. So I can't help but think about them when I hear the psalmist say, the Lord is my shepherd, or when I hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. Problem is, I don't know much about sheep. I don't know about you. I don't interact with sheep a whole lot in my daily life. It's one of the most common metaphors in the entire Bible, and yet it's so easily lost on me. So I decided I needed to ask them what I needed to know about sheep and shepherds. I know you all have sheep on your farm, I said in my message to Kevin and Sarah. Can you give me some information about them so I can better understand what the psalmist and Jesus are getting at? What is it about sheep and shepherds that I need to know to better understand these stories? And so Sarah was the first one to respond, and she said a couple of things. First of all, sheep are not stupid. It's a common misconception. They're not stupid, but they are helpless. Sheep are what's known as a prey animal, which means they only have the flight mechanism, but, and they are unable to fight. Sometimes the rams will fight amongst themselves. They will butt heads, but when a real predator comes, they are defenseless. The most aggressive thing I've seen them do, she said, is that when the dogs get too close, they will stomp their feet. But as soon as the dogs start chasing them, they'll run away. The problem is, is that sheep aren't especially fast either, especially when their wool is long and wet. They're easy prey. The second thing she told me is that when we went and first picked up our sheep, we were told because we were cattle farmers that sheep cannot be heard the way that cattle are. So if you think about the movies or TV shows, often it's a rancher pushing the cattle from behind, driving them where they want the cattle to go. The difference with sheep, though, is that they want to be led. They want to follow the shepherd where the shepherd is going. And what Sarah said is that they were new at this, and so they didn't listen. And so the first day they brought the sheep home, they led them out to pasture. And almost right away, one of the sheep found a hole in the fence and got loose. And so she said, we need to get him back in the barn and so locked up so we could fix the fence. So we started doing what we were used to doing with the cattle. She said we started trying to drive the sheep where we wanted them to go. But it didn't work, and they just started scattering and running in all different directions. She said we chased those sheep for four hours in the rain. But then they stopped chasing them, and they were able to lure one of the sheep into the barn with some food, and the others began to follow. It really took no effort at all once they did that. When they were being chased out of fear, they ran away. But when Sarah and Kevin walked ahead of them, they followed and went where they were supposed to go. And then Sarah said to me, Sheep will never go anywhere that you as the shepherd have not already gone before. Now, I don't know about you, 
But all this information didn't get me super excited about sheep. They're not all that impressive. If the Lord is my shepherd and Jesus is the good shepherd, then we are his sheep. I don't really want to be described as a sheep. I prefer a different metaphor for my life. Whether it be something different, something cool, something like a bear or a lion, something that can do more than simply stomp their feet when a threat arises. I'd like to imagine myself as at least a little more imposing than a sheep. If I can't fight, then maybe I can run away like a gazelle or a horse. But sheep? Sheep are followers. No one really wants to be a follower. It really flies in the face of our own American cultural identity. We want to see ourselves as self-made, as, as forgers of our own destiny. I had a professor in seminary who warned us, no one wants to be called a sheep. And if we didn't believe him, then during our first call after seminary, we should call our first congregation sheep and see how long we last. I wonder what he would think knowing that I'm here on my second Sunday in the pulpit telling you all about sheep. Calling anyone sheep is in a lot of ways offensive and insulting, especially in recent days where those who have been resisting masking and social distancing guidelines have called those of us who are trying to take all of that seriously, they've called us sheeple. Ben Franklin once said, make yourself a sheep and the wolves will eat you. Don't insult me by calling me a sheep. But then life inevitably happens. We thought we were ready to fight off the wolves, to stand up to those challenges we were facing, those unexpected moments of suffering, those overwhelming questions and fears and anxieties. And what we find out is that it's all far more powerful and overwhelming than we could have ever imagined. Maybe we were going along just fine in our lives. We may have been forging our own destiny. Things might have been going well. We might have been living in that idyllic scene that the psalmist paints for us, green pastures and still waters. But then the scenery dramatically changes. And we are now in that place called the valley of the shadow of death. The darkness of the valley, the rocks and the narrow pathways leave us unsure of where to even begin to try and find our way out. Every step we take leaves us feeling as if we will stumble and fall and that we might be stuck in that pit forever. And so we start to feel more like sheep than we would like to admit. We can't fight back. We can't run away. We find ourselves helpless and looking for that shepherd who will guide us. About a year after Heather and I were married, we were searching for a place to go on vacation, a place to kind of just get away from the the usual stuff of life. And two of my friends, Josh and Garrett, and their wives were living in the western part of Colorado. Uh, Garrett is now the, one of the co-pastors down at Fort Street in Detroit. And so we decided to go to Durango. It seemed like a, a great place to vacation. It's kind of a vacation-y type spot anyway. Now, I want you to know this about me. I am not an adrenaline junkie, not in any way, shape, or form. I like being inside. We've been doing these Zooming with Anders meetings, and I, people have been asking me, what are the things that I enjoy doing when I'm not in the pulpit? I like things like reading and watching movies, playing board games, and having the air conditioning running. <laughs> but what I quickly found out, when, and what I didn't know when I decided to go to Durango, is that's not what life is like in western Colorado. It's all about doing adrenaline-filled activities, things like whitewater rafting and mountain climbing. 
So a couple of weeks before Heather and I are supposed to fly out to Durango, I'm sitting on the couch in our apartment, the air conditioning running, reading a book, when my phone rings, and it's my friend Josh. So I answer the phone, and he tells me that he's wondering what sort of things would we like to do while we're on vacation out in Durango. He asked me if I had any thoughts on the things that we absolutely had to do. And I said, you know, not really. You've been living out there. You know the the things to do. Why don't you decide what we should do while we're out there? And so the the first thing he tells me is that Durango has a lot of great restaurants and great food. I said, yes, absolutely, I'm in. Let's do that. And then he tells me that in Durango, there is the last free-flowing river in Colorado. He says that people like to get inner tubes and just sort of, it's like a naturally occurring lazy river. I said, you know what? That sounds relaxing too. Let's, let's do that. And then Josh says, here's the other thing I was thinking. How would you feel about going and doing some waterfall jumping? I was silent on my end of the phone for a minute. Waterfall jumping, I said to him. Yeah, he said, there's this canyon out here with a, a bunch of waterfalls in it. There's like six of them. It's not super high. The, the shortest one is like six feet. The other ones are like 12 or 14 feet. People do it all the time. People have their kids out here. It's, it's super safe and super easy. So he's given me this really great description of this place, right? And I'm assuming that he's been there. He's painting this, this picture of this place that's sort of like a naturally occurring water park with kids and floaties and that sort of thing. And I said, okay, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll check with Heather and see if she wants to do that. Trying to sound like some concerned husband, but really hoping that she would say no and she could be my excuse out of it. But Heather, of course, thought it was a great idea. So a couple of days after we arrive in Durango, it's time for us to go out to this canyon and to do some waterfall jumping. We pile into the car and Josh starts driving us out to this place and we're getting further and further out of town, further and further into the Rocky Mountains. And finally, Josh pulls off the highway in the middle of nowhere to this little gravel parking lot, which is really nothing more than a shoulder along the road. And in order to get down into this little canyon, we have to kind of slide down this hill on our backsides to get to where the canyon begins. And so we stand there at the water's edge waiting to start, looking for where to start. And I look over at Josh, our fearless leader, the guy who told me all about this activity he had planned, who led me to believe he knew what he was doing. And he looks around confused, trying to figure out exactly where we're supposed to begin. And that's when I realized something. Josh had never been in that canyon before. He led me to believe that he had done it and he knew how to lead us through this activity. And now I'm realizing at the water's edge, he had no idea what he was doing. Like a sheep, my fear instinct is kicking in and I want to run away. And so as we're standing there trying to figure out how in the world we're going to do this activity, a group of three people walks up with a man whose name I can't remember, but forever in my mind, his name is Ryan. And Ryan is super chill. He embodies everything I would imagine about someone who lives in the western part of Colorado. He walks up to this canyon shirtless with a can of beer in his hand. He's here at this waterfall to have a good time. He must have seen the confusion on our faces and the fact that we had no idea what we were doing. And so Josh, our fearless leader, asks Ryan, Have you been here before? Oh yeah, Ryan says, I've done this a bunch of times. I'm out here taking my friends through. 
So Josh says, would it be cool if we followed you through? We've never done this before. And Ryan, with a look of knowing that's the case, says, yeah, I'd be happy to take you through. I take people through here all the time. I'm going to warn you, though, he says. There are six waterfalls in this canyon. And once you jump down the first one, you can't get out of the canyon until you jump down the sixth and final waterfall. He says, if you get scared and feel like you can't go on in the second, third, or fourth one, they're going to have to call an airlift helicopter and come and get you out, and that's super embarrassing, and everyone will make fun of you. So I have to decide in that moment if this is something I'm going to do. And I watched my friends and my wife all getting ready to do this, and I'll have to admit a little bit of peer pressure got me to do it. So if your kids are watching, this is not a great example of saying no to peer pressure. I had a little bit of FOMO, though, watching everybody else. I wanted to experience it as well. So I went for it. I jumped into that first waterfall, and I was in it until the end. And as we went along, we had to climb up the sides of the canyon to get to these little ledges where we could jump down. And Ryan would always go first. He would literally point to the places where we were supposed to put our hands and our feet, and he would jump in first, and then he would pop back up so we knew that the water wasn't too shallow. All we had to do was follow him through this canyon. And we finally got to the last waterfall. It was the tallest one of all of them, probably 12 or 14 feet down. And, and I'm one of the last people to jump. And I see Ryan and my friends have already jumped and they're waiting for me at the bottom. And I know it's okay because I've seen others go before me. So I jump and I land in the pool of water. We uh, hike back out of the canyon and back to our car and drive back to civilization. At the end of the day, though, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, one that I'm glad I actually went and did. In those waterfalls, Ryan was nothing short of a shepherd for us, someone who was always ahead of us. We didn't step anywhere he didn't step. We didn't jump into a waterfall that he didn't first jump into. He had been in that canyon before, and he knew the way through. The sheep will never go anywhere that the shepherd has not already gone. I don't know where you are in your life in this moment. I don't know if you're in green pastures or beside still waters. Maybe you're in that darkest of valleys. I would imagine for many of us, we find ourselves in that dark valley with this shared experience of a global pandemic. Heather introduced me to a phrase uh, last night called pandemic fine. What pandemic fine is that I have a roof over my head, I have food, I have my job, but I'm still dealing with the feelings of exhaustion and the draining of being in this pandemic. So even if you're not experiencing it in an acute way, I imagine most of us are living in the darkest valley. Beyond the pandemic, we may be in other valleys in our lives. We may be just starting out in those valleys. We may have been in them for a long time. And if that's where you are in your life, I hope that you can see that there is a shepherd who is walking ahead of you. A shepherd who has been in that valley before. A shepherd who knows every potential pitfall along the way. A shepherd who knows those very real experiences of fear and anxiety. Jesus has been there before. If Jesus is the shepherd and we are his sheep, and there is nowhere we can go in our lives, no situation we will find ourselves in, no experience that can befall us where we cannot look ahead and see that Jesus has already been there.
because that's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd walks ahead of his sheep. We as the sheep will never go anywhere in our lives if the shepherd has not already gone. And if that's true, then maybe it's not so bad being a sheep after all. Thanks be to God. Amen.